Douglas Carswell in the house. Welcome to the County Line. County Line congregation, welcome back. Douglas, I appreciate you taking the time this morning to come join us. Uh, so Mississippi Center for Public Policy, how in the world did you end up from uh, Parliament in Great, Great Britain to the CEO and president of Mississippi Center for Public Policy? Well, the short answer is... If you believe, as I do, that freedom and liberty are the thing that makes our species, the human species, distinct, it's the thing that lifts us up, as Ronald Reagan put it, from the, the swamp to the stars. If you think that freedom and liberty are what drives human progress, there's no other country in the world like the United States. Um, and so I wanted to come to the United States and do something for the liberty movement. I had been a member of parliament in Britain. I had campaigned for Brexit, for Britain taking back its freedoms. In fact, I co-founded Vote Leave, the official Brexit campaign team. And after we won that, I thought I wanted to come to the United States to do something for the liberty movement. Now, I, I, America is a big place, right? And when you're an outsider looking in, um, you think, where do you start? I looked at Washington. And you know what? I looked at Washington and I thought, a waste of time. You could spend a lifetime, you could spend hundreds of millions of dollars trying to move the dial in favor of freedom and liberty in D.C., and you know, the swamp will be. But the genius of the United States is that it's 50 different systems. So I figured that actually, if I came to a state that had a notionally Republican majority, um, that had a whole bunch of high tax, high regulation things that they had inherited from you know generations of Democrat rule, I figured that actually I could try and make a difference in a in, in this state in Mississippi. Now, I mean. I know America well enough to know that the South is the best part of America. Um, you you want to live somewhere where they eat grits for breakfast. You don't want to live in, you know, Vermont or California. <laughs> so it was obvious to me I wanted to work in the liberty movement. I wanted to work in the South, and I wanted to work for a state that I think could be doing so much better if it adopted free market ideas. And the job in Mississippi came along, and I, I jumped at it. Um, I met with the board virtually. I talked to them online. Um, and I just really hit it off with them. Great, great group of people. They've been pushing for freedom and liberty in Mississippi for 30 years. But, you know, the truth is Mississippi is often 50th out of 50, right? It's, Correct. It's, it's, it's often bottom of the class. It's bottom of the class because, if I'm honest with you, sometimes Mississippi is run like a European state. It's high tax, high regulation, lots of government boards and commissions cluttering up downtown Jackson. Um if we can make Mississippi less European and more American, Mississippi won't be 50th for much longer. It's so interesting that you lay it out like that, because if you talk to the average Mississippian, they would probably argue that they are one of the most American states. In what areas do you see the, the highest taxation that you speak of in regards to, to Mississippi being run like a European state? Well, take, for example, work. In Many European countries, you need a permit to work. You need a license to work. You need a George III type figure to say it's okay for you to earn a living. Mm -hmm. um, in America, you shouldn't have to do that. In America, you fought a revolutionary war to say, hang on, it's none of anyone else's business to tell me what I can and can't do. Yet here in Mississippi, an enormous number of jobs, everyday jobs, need a permit and a license in order to do. Now, I get it. If if I get on an airplane, I want to know that the pilot has got a license. Right. If I go in for surgery, I want to know that the surgeon has been licensed. But, you know, 
do you really need a license to earn a living cutting someone's hair? Now, you can you can see from the hair on my head, I don't often need the services of a barber. <laughs> but if I did need the services of a barber, I think I would take my chances with an unlicensed barber. Why do you need permits and permissions for everyday occupations? Um, it's it's a European way of running a state. It, it's one of the reasons why Mississippi has been held back. You need permits for many things. You know, we are surrounded here in Mississippi by states that have done incredibly well. Look at look at Tennessee. How many young Mississippians do you speak to who say they want to go to Nashville? Right? Too many. How many young Mississippians do you meet who want to go to Austin in Texas? Too many. What does Tennessee and Texas have? No income tax. No income tax. Exactly. We need to get rid of the income tax. Um, we need to get rid of it completely. Now we cut it down to a flat four percent. That's great. That's 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 progress. But we 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 need if if we want to join that southern success story. You know, for 30, 40 years, states like Texas, Florida, Tennessee, South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, they've been thriving. They've been thriving because they've cut taxes and deregulated. We could be part of that southern success story if we get rid of the regulations that are holding us back. Does some would argue in favor of those licenses and the fees and all that comes with having to obtain I'm those sure permits for sure those, you know, for those sure. like barbers or, or what have you. Sure. If we were to deregulate that and say we do take chances on professions such as barbers that don't have licenses, the state depends on that revenue to a certain extent. And I would say probably because our tax base is so um, distraught, for lack of a better word. Would that, do you think that would have a, a positive impact on the revenue or no, a negative the, the, impact? The, the rationale for maintaining these permits and licenses is not that they generate large volumes of revenue for the state. I mean, they, they, just, they just don't. Okay. The argument put forward is that the customer needs to know that the people doing these jobs have been certified. Again, that's just baloney. That's the kind of argument George III would be saying if he was running America today. The real reason why we keep these licenses is because the people who've already got them want to keep out cheap competitors. Mm. If you look at occupational licensing, it's largely a racket. It's a scam. It's... um what you might call an aristocracy of certified professionals mm -hmm. using regulation to keep out cheap competition. I see. One of the things that the governor, I think to his great credit, has done, this is Tate Reeves, he signed into law a bill that we had been pushing for for universal occupational licensing recognition. This means for 27, I think it is, different professions. If you've got a certification and a license in a different state, you can automatically apply to get a license and get it here in Mississippi. Now, that hasn't led to a flood of people coming in from outside. But what it has done is caused Mississippians, particularly young Mississippians, to turn around and say, hey, hang on, why am I having to take several hundred hours of nonsensical training to get a permit when some guy from Alabama can come in and get one right away? So it's creating this downward pressure mm. on, on certification. And I, I think there's one area of certification that's really needs to be addressed, and that is particularly teachers. If you have a small monopoly of certification for teachers in the hands of state officials, and they often tend to be terribly woke, and they often tend to be, you know, um, prone to left-wing thinking, it, it, it infects the whole public school system. So I think there are not just good economic reasons to get rid of restrictive licenses. I think we need to end the monopoly for certification for teachers as well. Yeah, I agree with that because what's happening in the teaching profession is they're steadily 
lowering the standard required to become a teacher because there's such a shortage. And so effectively it's, it's, it's a restraint and causing a, um, a backlog or a, a, a restraint for lack of a better word, when people are trying to get licensed to become educators, um, because the license is not serving the purpose that it was intended to. Yeah. They're steadily having to lower the bar yeah. because they're trying to make it easier and more appealing for more people to become but teachers. When you study hard and get a CPA, it's it's a it's a quality control, isn't it? You, you're a certified CPA. That means you you can be trusted to do the books for someone. You can be trusted to do their tax returns and all the rest of it. Um, it should be similar when you're uh, a certified and approved licensed teacher. The, the, the problem is you've got a, a monopolistic system of approval for teachers in particular. And, you know, it means that a lot of the people who are training to be teachers go in with good intentions. But I, I, I would suggest that when they're being taught how to teach, they're not actually being taught how to teach the way they should be being taught how to teach. They're often, not always, but often in other states, there's evidence that they're being taught to almost teach children what to think rather than how to think to create mini activists in the classroom. Very so. much so. Um, I was in the Masters of Education program at the University of Southern Mississippi about four or five years ago and came to recognize very quickly that the curriculum had been heavily influenced mm -hmm. by the woke ideology. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Books such as White Like Me. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with that book? No. It's about a gentleman from originally from Nashville, I believe, and moved to New Orleans. And basically the entire book, again, the book's titled White Like Me, and the author's name escapes me, but people listening can find it online. And he basically goes through and in typical woke fashion outlines his thinking behind every reasoning why America's racist. And <laughs> Let uh, me tell you something. If America was racist, right? When I came to this country, I was in a long line of people at an Atlanta airport and standing in the line in front of me and behind me trying to get into this country were people of every color, every continent, every culture, every creed trying to get into America. If America was so racist, they wouldn't be coming here. If America was racist, look at the southern border. You see tens of thousands of people trying to climb over the fence and make their way into Texas. If America was racist, the traffic would be going the other way around. There'd be tens of thousands of Texans trying to climb over the fence to get to Guatemala. The fact that all these people want to come to the United States tells you something about America. It tells you what liberal progressives don't realize, which is that this country is a land of opportunity for everyone. There is no other country in the world like the United States. No matter what your background, your color, your creed, if you can make it anyway, it's in the United States. And the world knows this, which is why they're trying to come here. They're not trying to get into China. People aren't clambering over fences to get into Russia. They're trying to get into the United States. Don't let people demoralize you into thinking that there is something systemically racist and wrong with the United States. This is the greatest country that has ever existed, and the world knows it today, which is why the world wants to come and live here. It's so interesting to me to analyze the origins and intentions behind the woke ideology, and I've come to the conclusion here recently that they want to recreate and feed off of the civil rights movement that, that happened in the 50s and the 60s, and... But the problem with that is that most of these elites who espouse this ideology have zero experience with that well, uh, even similar situation. They're not from the South. They're I'm, not, you know, they're from the Northeast and Ivy League educated. And I, I would say the civil rights movement was about making good 
the founders promise. When the founders wrote very famously, all men are created equal, they meant that all people should be equal before the law and irrespective, unlike back in old Europe before the Enlightenment, it didn't matter what you were by birth, it didn't matter what you were by colour or creed or caste, in this new republic they were creating, all people will be treated equally. There's a very, very famous um, you know, um, series of discussions that the founders had, and, and some of that's reflected in the Federalist Papers. They very clearly wanted to create a society where people will be judged as individuals, and that was a revolutionary idea at the time. America, unfortunately, didn't always live up to that founding principle. But that's not to say the principle was wrong. It's just that human nature is flawed and the republic created leaders and laws that didn't live up to that, uh, that, 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 that promise. One of the reasons why I think Martin Luther King so resonated with the people across the United States from every background is because he appealed to this founding principle. He was echoing the promise of Jefferson and Madison and the founders. He was, if you like, true to that tradition of the founding of the Republic. Woke is completely different from that. Woke is not about creating a society where people are equal. Woke is fundamentally about destroying and undermining the foundations of the American Republic. It sets out to rewrite history, to demoralize America, to discredit and to delegitimize the United States. It, it's not just a case of people causing a bit of a fuss and you have to indulge them and be nice to them. They fundamentally want to destroy your way of life. They fundamentally want to overturn the moral codes that you believe and that your forebearers believed in that have elevated them and this society to what it is today. It's The culture was not a war of choice. It's being inflicted upon this republic. And if there's one flaw I think Americans have is they're too nice, they're too polite. They're too good-natured. Good and they've allowed this obnoxious minority in academia to perpetuate ideas that are now fundamentally destructive to the country. You wouldn't let a foreign power do this to you. So why are you allowing woke ideologues do this to you? As an outsider, I implore you, not just for your sake, the United States, the future of the United States matters to the world. If you guys go down, if you guys lose what made you exceptional, if you guys lose the founding principles... It's a disaster for you guys. It's a catastrophe for the world. Don't let the woke mob bully you into believing America is flawed and wrong. You're not. So who do you think is currently, as it stands today, winning the culture war? The, the left, undoubtedly. And the reason is... Is it close? Is it getting closer? There is some evidence that conservatives are waking up to it, but too many conservatives are still worrying about things like, and don't get me wrong, I'm a huge advocate for cutting income tax, but talking about income tax and deregulation. The real battle of our time is not just about economic issues. It is fundamentally about cultural issues. Um, the woke left has been very, very good. They've captured the education system. How many states have national Republican majorities like Mississippi but Republicans who sit there in office thinking they're in control, all the while they have a Department of Education that promotes um, teaching sources that are overtly in favor of critical race theory. How many Republican uh, politicians sit there and allow within their state teacher training uh, faculties to produce a cadre of teachers who go out into the classroom and create a generation of young activists? This is why conservatives are losing the culture war. We, we, we pushed back very successfully in the 80s and the 90s because we used what was then the new medium, things like um, you know, um, uh, talk radio, to push back. 
we, we, we've been completely outgunned recently. We've got the tech um, platforms that are, that are rigged against us. Um, we've not been as effective at pushing back. This is why I think, by the way, your efforts are really, really commendable. It's initiatives like this that, that allow us to, to, to talk back. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, conservatives need a sense of strategic direction. They need to recognize culture is important. Culture is vital. Culture is upstream of everything. And if you don't fight back in the culture war, you're going to lose everything ultimately. And we need to understand, we need to stop being so defensive. Every time we get into an argument with the left, there's a fear, particularly in the South, given the history, that if the other lot characterize us as somehow being bigoted or racist, we, we have to surround it. No, there's nothing extreme or racist about believing that all people are created equal. There's nothing bigoted or racist about believing that positive discrimination is discrimination and therefore morally wrong. There's nothing bigoted or racist about believing that the United States is a great example of how to live your life, um, you know, how countries could, could, could organize themselves. There's nothing bigoted or racist about believing that Western culture has uh, produced the pinnacle of, of human achievement. Um, these things, I think, need to be said and they need to be articulated and we need to stop apologizing for it. It does worry me that Republicans or conservatives in general are lacking in the awareness of, of what woke is and how it has impacted our country over, I mean, a long history. I mean, it's just coming to the surface now, as you well know, but it, it has infiltrated our educational institutions, academia, media, particularly. My worry is more so than Republicans being aware are people that call themselves Democrats or liberals. I think they have to recognize and begin to separate themselves from that obnoxious minority that you alluded to. Absolutely. Stop and ask yourself a question. Jimmy Carter, I think, was a good U.S. president. He wasn't a brilliant president. Personally, if I was around, I, I would have favored Reagan. Um, but I think Jimmy Carter was a good man. Jimmy Carter's type of Democrat party was a party full of good, decent patriots. Even, and not all of your listeners will agree with this, I would even say actually Bill Clinton not not his wife, but Bill Clinton was a decent politician. Oh, I think so too. I think he balanced the books. He accepted Wisconsin's model of welfare reform. I, I, I think Bill Clinton, if you're going to have a Democrat in office, you can't, you know, you could do a lot worse than Bill Clinton. I think he was, a, he was a good president. What happened to that Democrat party? What happened to the Democrat party? It's been Bill hijacked. Clinton? I know. Democrats need to ask themselves, at what point, as Jordan Peterson famously puts it, at what point do they go too far? Now, at what point do they say, hang on, um, you know, if you believe in equal treatment for all people, you can't be in favor of affirmative action. If you believe in feminism, you can't support having men, biological males, invade women's spaces. At what point do decent Democrats say enough? At what point does the party of Jimmy Carter say we're not going to become the party of, you know, AOC? And I think they, they lack leadership in that regard. I think the closest thing they have to it is Joe Manchin. And, you know, who who knows what he's going to do? Do you think he's going to run? I, I, I just don't know. I mean, there's, there's what's his name, Robert Kennedy. Um, but, you know, I, I rather think some of the people we've just mentioned, they're good, decent people and they're interesting th figures. But the fact that their chances of actually being in charge of the Democrat Party are almost nil kind of explains the problem. Right, right. And so that's an interesting conversation when we talk about the the presidential election cycle that's coming up. 
and how that will play out on the Democratic side, I do not believe, regardless of what Democrats say, that Joe Biden will ultimately be on the general election ticket. I, I, I just don't know. I mean, sometimes, you know, I, I, I don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand me. I believe in the United States and I, I teach my daughter She's a Brit. She came over with me. I teach her that she should respect whoever is in the office of the president of the United States. Not not because as a family, we might agree or disagree with them. I mean, we don't get a vote. We're foreigners. But simply we're guests in a country and it's part of the U.S. system. It's part of the U.S. Constitution. And if people in the United States have voted for this person to be the president, you need to show them a certain degree of respect. And so I don't go for any of that, you know, smearing Joe Biden stuff, you know. I, I, I think for a civil republic to survive, people need to show some respect to whoever is duly elected to the highest office. But all that said, I just sometimes wonder if if the incumbent president is is up to it in terms of his age. I just, you know, the stresses and strains of the job, I, I, I wouldn't be totally surprised if the Democrats come up with a different candidate. I mean, I just can't imagine them without the pandemic going on, running him and trotting him out there for debates that should be had, yeah. um, appearances that should be made, questions, facing questions that should be answered, and him being able to handle the rigor and the stress of a you, presidential election you campaign. You need that democratic accountability. And I, I cannot recall the last time I saw... Joe Biden taking part in a press conference where he was asked meaningful and 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 you know meaningful questions, um, and I think you know we we need to have that debate for sure, for and it, sure. it mustn't be a shouting match. Um, yeah, I was very very impressed the other day when I was listening to a little clip of Vivek Ramaswamy who is running to be president on the Republican ticket. Now, I, I, I sat next to Vivek at a, at a lunch. I don't know him particularly well. I know him slightly. I like the guy. What really struck me is that he was asked by a trans activist a question. And rather than shout them down, he answered it honestly, politely, thoughtfully, respectfully. He disagreed with them. And at the end of the exchange, the trans activist and Vivek Ramaswamy both thanked each other and were civil to each other. And it kind of... 30 years ago, that would have been normal. Maybe we need to return to that sort of approach to politics. We need honest, frank answers from people who want the highest office. We need long conversations about these difficult issues. But it's just not happening at the moment. It's, I, I, I can't recall seeing Joe Biden really explaining some of his administration's positions on some of these thorny questions. I don't think he can. I don't think he can. I'm not saying that at one time he wasn't competent, but currently, I mean, I, I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to watch him, a clip of him currently and decipher and decide that he's not fit for the, he's not fit for the office. So I don't see how Democrats moving forward, look at that for 2024 and don't just have, take inventory and look at themselves in the mirror and say, okay, do we really believe that this guy can represent us in a presidential quote-unquote manner i just don't i don't see how they could convince I mean, themselves of that I, I i take your point that said i suspect the clock is ticking because you know there'll come a time if they're gonna if they're gonna if they're gonna change horses midstream there comes a time when you got to make the move yeah and and so my question becomes how does the the democratic primary play out 
you I know, mean, if it's Kamala, then I think whoever's running against her wins. Yeah. Um, I'm just, I don't wish to be unkind to her, but I'm just not sure she's a particularly effective politician. I mean, when she ran to be the Democrat candidate, she was singularly unsuccessful and really only revived her career because Joe Biden put her on her, his ticket. Um, I, I think Gavin Newsom would perhaps be quite a formidable candidate, not because I think he's run California well. On the contrary, I think California's um, almost a poster boy of how not to do things. Um, but he's just new. And I think there's yeah. a certain, you know, in a, in a contest where you've got two big names representing each of the two parties, I think novelty just is its own, its own, its own virtue. Um, but, you know... I I look at the Republicans and I think, you know, I suspect it'll be um, Donald Trump, um, you know, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's Donald Trump um, running with Vivek Ramaswamy as his vice president. I think a lot of people would be happy with that. Um, as it pertains to Donald Trump coming down with the fourth indictment, is this, in your view, are any of these charges legitimate or is it a witch hunt? This is a really, really, really dangerous moment for the American Republic. I always used to think that, for want of a better term, banana republics were places where people in power persecuted their political opponents. You know, the countries like Malaysia, where the leader of the opposition is constantly facing lawsuits. I didn't think that would ever happen in the United States. And yet now we're clearly seeing prosecutions, politically motivated prosecutions, um, and I, I, I think we should all be very concerned by it. You know, the United States is above that and better than that. Now, that's not to say that someone running for office can't be guilty of criminal offences, but just, just look at some of the charges that have been brought. Um, I, I think some of the thinking behind some of those bringing the charges is that it's a way of using lawfare, political lawfare, to take out an opponent. I, instantly, I happen to think it, 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 it's probably backfired. I think Trump is probably more popular today as a result of the charges that have been brought against him than he would otherwise be. But it, it's, it's very worrying. I mean, do we then think that, you know, if there's a change in the White House um, in, in, in a year's time, you know, are we then going to see, you know, the, the Biden family prosecuted on the basis of what happened to be on one of the Biden family's laptop. I mean, it's a very, very dangerous avenue to go down once you start once you start prosecuting political opponents. Um, I I think um, you know Gerald Ford was not a great president, and I think Gerald Ford was probably not someone who was really fit for the highest office in the land. But I think he got one thing right, and that was to give a pardon to Nixon. I just I just generally think that unless you've done something really outrageous. Um, if you are, um, you know, you, you shouldn't use prosecutions to, to take out political opponents. Well, there are things that I do on a daily basis that if a prosecutor wanted to try hard enough, they could, they could spy on me, they could dig, they could find things that I do that are outside of the law. No matter how minuscule it may be, they could find wrongdoings in my life and they could continue on towards a path of prosecution 
if they so cho- chose to do that, if they were that adamant to paint me in a bad light. And I think that's what's going on. Now, my question becomes, is this collusion on the part of the DOJ across the country, whether it be Florida, Georgia, at the federal at the federal level? I, are they just looking across the country and saying, okay, we're all in alliance on this. We understand that we want to make it as tough on Trump as possible. I, I just don't know that. I just, I simply don't know that, and I'm not in a position to answer it. I just, I can't help noticing that, for example, in Georgia, it's taken them a mere six months to bring about a prosecution that by any reasonable stretch of the imagination would have taken much, much longer than that. There seems to be a sort of an accelerated process. So I I, I don't know if it's a conspiracy, um, but I, and it doesn't really need to be a conspiracy. You can have, you know, opportunistic um, justice officials deciding off their own initiative to, to, to try and, you know, um, as they see it, you know, prosecute um, someone from the other side. But yeah, I think it's very, very worrying for America. It's the kind of thing that happens in South American republics. It's not what should be happening in the republic founded by, you know, Thomas Jefferson in Madison. Yeah, it appears that particularly the case in Georgia, he's already been charged with what they're charging him with at the state level, at the federal level. Also, she brought RICO charges against him and she has a history, she being Fannie Willis, the, I guess, district attorney of Fulton County. She has a history of being uh, in favor of bringing RICO charges. Young Thug, a rapper from Atlanta, she mm. slapped him with a RICO charge. Now, I think he's probably, it's probably warranted. Mm. Um, now, everybody's innocent until proven guilty, but there's enough suspicion there that he could bring on a RICO case. My understanding is that RICO cases were developed as a way of dealing with organized crime families correct and i just think it's a little bit disconcerting to see that being used in this instance and you know wh- where do where will it end if if charges if no pun intended trumped up charges are brought against trump um that i can i can hear it now i can hear the political opponents of the left saying ha come on let's let let's let's prosecute um you know, the 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 the, the Bidens. Oh, and, absolutely. And 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 you know, you you can't survive as a republic if you start behaving. Like no, that. absolutely not. That's childish. I mean, and, and there's already evidence. There's already evidence since the since the House has been taken by the Republicans that they're going down that path. Mm-hmm. They are going to try to retaliate. And I, you know, I'm not particularly. Uh, in favor of a two-party system. I mean, I understand why it exists, but all things considered, when you consider technology, um, just the nature of politics now, social media, the two-party system has done more to divide us Mm -hmm. than unite us. And I think we have got to find a way to see past the red, the blue, the R, the D. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I, I agree. I can't help noticing, though, that there was a young politician who won uh, and came to national attention and won the nomination of his party by giving a speech that said exactly that. He talked to Barack Obama. He talked about um, the blue states and the red states and how America shouldn't think of itself as divided by blue states or red states, but also since then, I can't think of someone who's done more to, to, to um, at every opportunity, divide the blues and the reds um, at every opportunity 
um, to, to, to play the sort of the culture card. Yeah, as I look back at the history, the relative, re- relatively recent history of the United States politics, it appears that whenever Obama entered around that time frame, whether it's directly, whether we can directly contribute it to him or not, regardless, around the time that he entered office, the division became more intense. I, I, I think you're right. I I think part of the blame should go to Bush the Younger's, um, was it Karl Rove, his great election mm-hmm. strategist? Mm-hmm. He started this idea of what he called wedge issues. And he started deliberately using particular issues that were very emotive to core supporters as a way of boosting turnout. And once Karl Rove started using wedge issues to boost turnout in key states like Florida, it started to have an equal and opposite reaction, the laws of physics. Um, and I think it started to provoke the left to to do something similar, whether they were conscious of it or not. And, and you're right. Obama then comes in and despite his his warm words, he very much plays the game of using certain issues to boost turnout, um, to win elections and suppress turnout in other districts. Politics in America then becomes not a popularity contest, it becomes an unpopularity contest. You can almost say from Obama. Obama comes in. Obama, you then have Trump being elected because he is not a Clinton. You could almost say that Biden is then elected because he is not Trump. And it almost becomes a case of, you know, voting out whoever has been annoying Americans most in the White House for the longest. Um, and, uh, you know, politics then becomes an unpopularity contest. I'm, I'm not sure that's really, you know, w- would would the system as it's currently operating have ever been able to produce a Ronald Reagan or a, um, a Bill Clinton? Um, I'm not sure that it could have. It also got messy around the time that Obama entered office due to the advances in technology, social media, the advent of social media, the utilization of that by Obama, and then Trump's administration did well with social media in 2016, and it just fed that engine. Well, I I remember being told how brilliant Obama was because he and his team had figured out how to use social media to get the message across, right? Over in the UK, we used exactly the same platforms. I, I did it for a, a, a special election I ran on, and then um, I co-founded Vote Leave, the official Brexit campaign, and then we used a lot of social media to, to, to win um, that, that, that vote. And we were then told that far from being a brilliant example of using social media and connecting with youth, it was a manipulative and distortive, and you know there, there, there were Russians involved, apparently, we were told. Um, so, you know, I, I think... The nature of social media slightly changed. When Obama was elected, it was a relatively unrestrained platform. Um, You would post things and they would go viral based on whether or not readers were interested. It was more of a free market. It was a free market. Now it's become a very paternalistic market where you have algorithms that deliberately suppress views that aren't approved of. And... What should have been a really liberating medium, I wrote a book at the time called The End of Politics and the Birth of Our Democracy based on how I thought the internet would change politics. You read it or wrote it? I wrote it. What's the name of it again? The, um, the um, End of Politics and the Birth of Our Democracy. 
and I suggested that with the internet, you would allow individuals to come along and have a higher profile than their party. Trump, Vivek Ramaswamy. Um, I suggested that you would be able to have debates and discussions democratically and not have to rely on the mainstream media to articulate particular points of view. And, and for a while, that's what happened. Um, and this led to what the left calls populism, which is, in other words, politics suddenly began to be a discussion about the things that people actually cared about. Mm -hmm. Then you got almost a sort of counter-reformation where the elites didn't like this because they think it led to voters actually deciding how they wanted their countries to be run and voting to leave the European Union and voting for a tough line on immigration and, and, and you know, voting for things that you know might not have been in the best interests of um, Wall Street. Um, and so big tech came along and very much suppressed social media as a democratic means for reviving politics. Um, what's really interesting now, I think, is that you're, you're, you're almost going to get a counter-counter-reformation. Um, I don't think the big tech media can suppress the internet as a, as a democratizing force for much longer. Platforms like Facebook that have intentionally suppressed unfashionable opinions are, are paying the price. They're, they're losing audience share. There's a very interesting interview that Mark Zuckerberg did a while ago, the, the interview in which he seemed to admit that they had suppressed stories during COVID um, at the invitation of state officials, government officials, federal officials. That, to me, wasn't the most interesting thing that Zuckerberg admitted to. What Zuckerberg seemed to me to admit to was that... Um, they as a platform would pay a very heavy price if they continued to try to dictate what narratives and stories and information people got on Facebook. So I, I suspect that the ability of big tech to suppress unpopular opinions, unfashionable opinions, I'd say, popular opinions, but the ones that you know hipsters on the West Coast disapprove of, I suspect their ability to um, prevent the discussion of issues they don't want discussed is coming to an end. Yeah, the unfortunate part about the evolution of technology and the advent of social media is that the people who were largely involved and in making that happen and bringing that to the forefront control the narrative, and they just so happen to be of the liberal mindset. Absolutely. And so conservatives, look, liberals and Democrats are masters at messaging, communication, mm -hmm. you know, pushing their message to the people that they mm -hmm. want the message to be heard by. Conservatives, in my view, they have to do a better job of being involved in technology, whether it be creating their own technology, which yeah. that, that idea to me is dangerous because then you really, we already have echo chambers and people can create their virtual mm -hmm. worlds online, regardless of whether it's controlled, the, the technology is controlled by liberals or conservatives. But if you, if you now have conservatives come into the marketplace and they create their own technology and say they do the same things mm -hmm. that liberals have been doing with Facebook and Instagram, Twitter, which is now X, um, then you really are going to separate minds mm -hmm. and you're really going to have mm -hmm. two separate conversations. As conservatives, I think we tend to think that you shouldn't try to police other people and what they think. You should just ensure that you have free competition of ideas. Mm -hmm. The problem is that we're up against people who don't believe that, mm -hmm. um, progressives and the radical left in America 
perhaps fearful that their ideas don't stand up to scrutiny. No platform people. They, they remove the ability for the free competition of ideas on campus. They suppress ideas they don't agree with on, on social media. And it's quite revealing, isn't it, that during COVID, um, social media deliberately suppressed arguments that suggested that COVID might have escaped from a lab. Mm -hmm. They deliberately suppressed people who questioned the efficacy of insisting that school children wear masks. Um, they demonstrated, I think, quite clearly that far from being a space where you could have a, a free flow of ideas, they were um, controlled platforms and, and, and very biased. It's, it's the bias of the tech elite um, that, that, that sort of determines the parameters of, of, of debate. Conservatives, I think some conservatives would say, okay, um, you know, if, if people who own a tech platform don't want it to be used for um, different ideas, that's, that's you know, we, we, we can't tell these companies how to, how to run their private business. I certainly think when it comes to universities, we can insist that there is, you know, universities are, are definitely the public space, public universities. I, I think we should do far more to insist that there are a, a variety of different ideas put out there. And, you know, we, we again, in, in, in notionally Republican, notionally conservative states like Mississippi, uh, we often find that the people who run university campuses are almost uniformly left wing. Yep. Um, we, we need to do a much, much better job of insisting that you get a genuine diversity of ideas on campus. I had no idea about the infiltration of woke ideology into academia when I was in college, which hasn't been, I mean, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I would find myself in classes. Where was that? So I went to, this? well, I started at Mississippi State, mm -hmm. had two, two stints at Mississippi State. I graduated undergrad at Ole Miss, and then I started the graduate the education graduate program at Southern Miss mm -hmm. and ultimately decided not to follow through with it mm -hmm. because of some of the reasons that I alluded to. But when I started, I had zero idea, mm -hmm. you know, in 2012. And then by the time it was 2016, I had recognized what was going on. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, it is blatantly obvious, especially if you get in a class like uh, sociology, African-American studies, any education course, it is very evident that the woke ideology has influenced that curriculum, the creation of that curriculum. And that's unfortunate because in, in my mind, I was thinking as a naive child, I'm thinking, okay, well, these are just different ideas that I've never been exposed to, so I'm going to entertain them. Mm -hmm. And for a short while, I subscribed to them. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought they were not necessarily the gospel, but I thought I was being educated. I thought I was being enlightened mm -hmm. when all reality, to a certain extent, I was being indoctrinated. I think sociology is particularly, to use a favorite phrase of the left, problematic. Um, I think there's growing evidence that a lot of sociolo sociology papers uh, uh, have, you know, all the efficacy of, of, of voodoo. Um, sociology positions itself and presents itself as being a science based on empirical evidence and hard data. Mm -hmm. But actually, a lot of old papers, sociology papers, that underpin a lot of what is taught in sociological departments and universities have been reassessed and found to be works of, of fiction. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I'm not sure that sociology is a particularly credible science. Um, 
I think it's a little bit like macroeconomics today. Macroeconomics is dominated by people who present spreadsheets and data and sums and mathematics. Um, they they present themselves as a science, but they're not really. They they're not credible. They they don't really apply the scientific method to sociology. They don't really do what you need to do in science, which is to run, in effect, um, you know, the equivalent of, of clinical trials to test data, to, mm -hmm. to replicate results. Um, you know, a, an enormous number of papers in sociology have findings that haven't been and can't be replicated by third parties. So I'm, I think a lot of sociology is, I would say, intellectually valueless. Yeah, I mean, I, that's the, the takeaway that I had largely after taking courses in sociology and then reflecting on them after the fact, even psychology to a certain extent, like the labs that they had us do um, when I was on campus at Mississippi State. Now, again, this has been 10 years ago, so things could have changed. I'm just saying that's the way it yeah, that's may have changed, but not necessarily for the better. <laughs> yeah. And so my question ultimately became once I had my stint in public universities in the state of Mississippi, mm -hmm. where does this line of thinking come from? And why is it being, I mean, I know why it's being pushed in the universities, but who is behind the advocacy and implementation of these ideas in our universities? A, a lot of the origins of woke ideology um, stems from something called postmodernism. Postmodernism is a movement started in France, like many bad ideas that came out of continental <laughs> Europe. Um, no, seriously, a lot of the world's most dangerous isms yeah. come from Europe. It's no coincidence. It's the English-speaking world that has, on three occasions, had to go into Europe to save Europe from the consequences of its own distorted and evil ideologies. Um, you know, Nazism, Marxism, um, Jacobinism. Um, the postmodernists basically argued that there's no such thing as objective truth. And they also, I think, more consequentially, suggested that there's no such thing as the superiority of one culture or one way of life over and above another. They were cultural relativists. And I think a lot of our problems today stem from cultural relativism, a failure to recognize that there are some ways of living that are better than others. Mm. Um, so some academics, I think, have been influenced by postmodernism. Some have been influenced by cultural Marxism. What do I mean by cultural Marxism? Marxists used to argue, and, and still do argue, that um, you can understand the world by looking at it as um, a competition between the oppressed and the oppressor. Um, traditional Marxists would, would say that it's the capitalists and the bourgeois who exploit the, the workers. The cultural Marxists come along and say the division is not socioeconomic so much as based on race or gender. And you've got, you know, um, a hierarchy of oppression um, with um, the oppressors on the top, who usually tend to be white and male, and the oppressed on the bottom. Then a slight twist to that, the intersectionists came along and said there's a sort of intersection of oppression. You know, um, if you are, if you have um, a... a, a, a a particular range of these immutable characteristics that can give you an even 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 more sort of bigged up um, status as someone who's um, oppressed uh, or, or or an oppressor. Um, but why why is this nonsense um, so popular in universities? My theory is a lot of it is due to laziness. If you are not very bright and not very industrious and not very hardworking, 
this woke belief system gives you a ready-made way of sounding more intelligent than, than you are. You can apply it to history, you can apply it to sociology, you can apply it to economics, you can apply it to pretty much any aspect of um, academic thinking. I mean, you might think, surely you can't apply these ideas to mathematics or, or physics, but tragically we're starting to see to see some of this. So I think it, it allows tenured professors to look and sound more well, cleverer and and harder working than they actually are. I think I think that is it's it's a it's a it's a convenience to wear it. Um, why I think the more interesting question is: Do administrators in these universities go along with this? Why do they tolerate a faculty um, that is woke and then apply the same ideas to the administration of the university? Part of it is cowardice. If you are a senior um, official in a university and someone comes along and says we've got this um, diversity and inclusivity program and we're going to apply it you, you probably don't look in too much detail at what that actually means in terms of how students are going to be taught um, you know, who can be against inclusivity who can be against diversity you, you you it probably doesn't pay for you to ask too many questions why because if you're the person who's against diversity and inclusivity you know there'll be terrible consequences for your career so you just kind of you you, you go along with it um i think also a lot of university administrators um are very wary of the fact that they they, they run probably a very difficult political operation they, they, they they've got a you know, they're dependent on public money, they're very high profile, you know, a, a large number of people around the state have um, car tags with the, the university badge on it. it, you know, everyone has a view about the university. They don't want to be the university that gets into trouble. Um, and so, you know, you've got faculty pushing these ideas and administrators who don't want to stand up to it. And so inevitably you end up with an American equivalent of the Chinese Cultural Revolution. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happening. Um, it, it should really concern America because you know, there, there's this very famous incident in American history, the, the Salem witch hunts. During the Salem witch hunts, a small group of girls accused decent citizens. This is in New England in the 1690s. A, a, a group of hysterical girls accused decent citizens of being witches and you know there were um, a whole series of trials i think um about 20 people ended up being hanged or, or, or one of them was was crushed um intentionally by by rocks as a form of cruel and unusual execution why was it that otherwise sane and rational people got it into their heads that people were witches it, it wasn't the girls whose hysteria was the problem. It was authority failing to stand up to it and say this is nonsense. And what's really revealing about the Salem witch hunts is the complete failure of people in authority to say, no, you can't accuse people falsely. No, there are boundaries to what... You know. What we're seeing in American campuses today is a woke mob like the girls in the Salem witch hunt pushing things and people in authority failing to stand up to it. And I suspect America will look back in the not too decent, not too, not too um, distant future 
and say, how on earth did we end up in a situation where we allowed a small vociferous woke mob to take over some of our public institutions? It, it's a failure of people in authority to stand up to it that is the key problem. And it's not just a problem in academia. It's a problem, I would argue, even more so in media. I used to think that what we called political correctness on campus was just an indulgence of slightly spoiled young people. And the moment they left university, went into the workplace and started paying tax, they would have to grow up and grow out of these ideas. How wrong I was. In fact, they took those ideas with yep. them into the HR departments of corporate mm -hmm. America. Yep. They took them into public administration. And you now see it to the point where, you know, when Bud Light decided that they were going to insult their core customers and embrace transgenderism. I had assumed that this was because some very, very clever marketing person had looked at the data and figured out this is a really clever way of selling more beer, right? It turned out that actually the person running the marketing department um, in charge of this initiative probably had less clue about marketing beer than, than I did. <laughs> the danger is that you've had 10, 20 years of woke recruitment policies in corporate America, in um, the administrative state. And, and you now end up in a situation where I think you've got genuinely incompetent people in positions of authority and the consequences of their own incompetence can no longer be, you know, glossed over. I suspect that the incompetence you saw in Bud's marketing campaign is going to be replicated in hundreds of different ways across corporate America in the, in, in the near future. Um, you're, you're going to see people who, who think that woke is actually a, 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 a good idea um, do some really, really dumb things um, based on assumptions that have never been properly tested. It's a very clever tactic on the part of liberals to advocate for the woke ideology because what it does is it divides the minorities in the country of all of all sorts, not just racial minorities, mm -hmm. but it it divides them and separates them from essentially white males, and has them ridicule and label white males as the oppressor throughout the history of America. Mm -hmm. But it also, in most cases, unites those minorities who is the Democrats who are the Democrats' target market, and. That's how they market themselves. They're, they're basically saying, look, we're going to try to appeal to the outcast yeah. or the downtrodden mm -hmm. or traditionally downtrodden people mm -hmm. of America, mm -hmm. and then we will unite those minorities it, it, and, and gain votes that I, way. I think it's really, really dangerous because, you know, in politics, one thing I've, I've discovered is that everything creates an equal and opposite reaction. And if something happens, you will create a response to it. I really worry that one of the consequences of woke ideology in the United States is going to be to awaken in hundreds of millions of Americans a sense of ethnic and racial identity that they don't currently have. I think most Americans that I come across tend to see themselves as American first and foremost. Um, and I think there's a real danger that you create the opportunity for charlatans to come along and 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 say okay right if 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 you know if if you're going to define um 
us as us on something other than the basis of being American. Um, right. Okay. Let's 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 embrace that identity, and that I think would be very very dangerous. You know, the great thing about the United States is that you know all Americans are created equal. When you have those two great days in America's annual calendar, July the fourth and Thanksgiving, they're an opportunity for people from any background to celebrate the fact that they're here. It doesn't matter whether you've arrived five minutes ago like me or whether you know, you're, you're a descendant of, of, of people who are on the Mayflower or indeed you, you, you descended from people who came over the Bering Strait 10,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. You can all celebrate Thanksgiving and give thanks for being American. If you insist upon Americans seeing themselves as belonging to a particular ethnic group, you undo all of that. You go back to the pre-American, pre-modern idea that we should define ourselves on the basis of birth. How can that be progressive? That is not progressive. That is regressive. So when progressives say that they are pushing for progress, they are not. They are undoing the Enlightenment. They are undoing the thing that makes America work. It is really, really dangerous. Look around the world. Look at the ethnic conflicts that are commonplace in, in Africa, in, in parts of Asia. You know, one of the reasons why, look, in Europe, one of the reasons why America works is because it's founded on this very modern idea that everyone, I, I suspect it's something to do with the Judeo-Christian idea that all of us are created in the image of God. It's this idea that everyone is of, of equal worth. Once you create a society or public policy based on the idea that you've got a hierarchy, um, you know, you you really do doom the American idea. It is a deeply, deeply dangerous um, way of thinking. Victor Davis Hanson has a video out describing just what you have, have described and essentially saying the same thing that we are now, after the after the civil rights movement, which was, in my opinion, and I believe in Victor Davis Hanson's opinion, the pinnacle of equality for all, mm -hmm. we started regressing back to separation by ethnic groups, separation by race, based because of identity politics. Yeah. When affirmative action was first approved and given the sign-off by the Supreme Court, it may not have actually been the first time, but, but one of the times um, about 40 years ago when the Supreme Court said it's okay to discriminate uh, on the basis of race when it comes to admissions. One of the justices of the Supreme Court very famously said, you know, we need to do this for 25 years. You know? um, and in 25 years' time, the need for us to discriminate in favor of African-Americans and um, discriminate against um, white Americans, um, in 25 years, we won't need to do that anymore. And I think a lot of people at the time probably bought into it and thinking, you know, it's a temporary measure. Um, we're equal, but you know we're going to give we're going to give, you know, our fellow Americans a, 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 a you know give, a leg up a leg up. Um, you know, forty years later, far from those temporary programs being temporary, they have become embedded and ingrained, and they don't just affect university admissions. Take, for example, the question of how municipal money is used in a city like Jackson. I would have thought that most people living in Jackson, as I do, would want to see their tax dollars used to provide water or sewage or, or whatever it is based on value for money. But because of affirmative action programs, money is often spent not on the basis of 
value for money, but on the basis of um, you know, affirmative action, my, contracts have to go to minority-owned companies. That's just one example of the way that this destructive thinking is, is becoming more and more ingrained in public life in America. What, what's really exciting, though, is that the Supreme Court recently ruled that affirmative action has no place in the United States. I think we shouldn't just now push ahead to end affirmative action in higher education. We should push ahead to end affirmative action in all areas of public life. Now, some people might say, if you do that, you're going to end up with unequal outcomes. You're going to see more, for example, Asian Americans or Korean Americans entering higher education and fewer African Americans. Okay, if that happens, let's address some of the consequences of that. Might it possibly be that the reason why you get different outcomes isn't because of supposedly the institutional racism of the institutions, but because there are other factors that need to be addressed. And if there are other factors that need to be addressed, let's address them. I don't think you do equality any favours by having this system of imposed affirmative action. Yeah, it, what happens is as we set the bar lower for certain Americans based off of race, we're essentially telling those Americans that they're not as good as the other races totally. that don't have totally. those standards yeah, to abide by. I mean, I couldn't even imagine it, but if I was a African-American graduate who had got my degree through hard work, I would be very concerned if anyone thought that I somehow had been given a, you know, given a leg up. It's, it's condescending. It's patronizing. It's un-American. Um, I, I think, um, you know, affirmative action has been tried for a lot longer than the 25 years the Supreme Court initially thought it should be tried for. It hasn't created the more just and equal society. It's actually been incredibly unjust and unfair, particularly on Asian Americans. It needs to go. But I don't think we should give up on the idea of equality. We need to now have a serious conversation. Okay, it's not the institutional racism of the Harvard's admission system that explains why.